Hey folks, welcome to another episode of The Electables. It's the first one since uh, the election, uh, a little more than two weeks ago. We now know that uh, Joe Biden is the president-elect. He had a convincing victory. Uh, he's approaching 80 million votes, which is a record for any candidate running for the presidency. He will hit 306 electoral votes. He will have won in places that Democrats have haven't won for one before in quite some time, including uh, Arizona and uh, Georgia. Uh, he was able to rebuild the blue wall uh, by winning convincingly uh, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, uh, as well as winning in Wisconsin. Uh, and um, despite what uh, Trump and some of his allies say, this was you know, we're going to, you know, it's it. This was not a particularly close election when we when you look at it from different measurements. Uh, obviously, some of the states were close. I think if you uh, and we're going to have we have someone who uh, was very prominent uh, on the campaign who we can talk to a little bit about the polling. But um, overall, Joe Biden and his team executed, I think. What will go down as one of the best general election campaigns uh, in history, especially when you keep in mind that this was conducted in uh, a pandemic, um, that traditional means of reaching voters uh, were, were certainly harder, if not impossible to do. We were running against an incumbent uh, who didn't care about the pandemic. So he basically ran a traditional campaign um, and we were also, and, uh, and also let's remember that beginning in the, uh, you know, uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, people had written off Joe Biden and his campaign. Um, and so, uh, when you look back at this last year, it was an, an unbelievable effort by a very good candidate. Uh, and what I, like I said before, what I think was a very good exceptional campaign, um, and we're lucky to have with us today um, a very good friend of mine and a partner of mine at SKDK and one of the lead strategists on Biden's campaign, um, Anita Dunn. Um, Anita doesn't need much of an introduction. I think for the folks who are listening to this podcast, everyone is aware and know of Anita's uh, history in politics as one of the top communications and media strategists and political strategists, not just in the Democratic Party, but in general. Um, she is, uh, to my knowledge, I, I, and I, maybe someone, I'm sure someone will correct me, but she has had leading roles and been a leading strategist to elect two different Democratic presidents. And I can't think of someone else recently that um, had that, played that type of role in uh, both help in, in electing two different Democratic presidents. Remember, Anita was a, uh, a, a top strategist to Barack Obama's campaign in 2008. She was also a uh, played a, a big role in 2012. Uh, but then uh, in 2020, she has been with the Biden campaign with Joe Biden since the start uh, and really helped to uh, steer the campaign back into the right direction following uh, Iowa, uh, the Iowa caucuses in New Hampshire primary. So um, I'm honored to have uh, and talk to my friend and, and seriously one of the 
best people I know, but also just such an unbelievable mind, uh, Anita Dunn. Welcome to the Electables, Anita. Oh, Doug, thank you. And um, that is such a flattering introduction. I feel like maybe we should bring somebody else on to do this with you. But <laughs> well, it it's all, I, I, it's I've all gotta true. Be, I've got to be honest with you, though. Just seeing you with the beard, it's enough. <laughs> <laughs> so like many people in the COVID era, you know, Anita and I haven't seen each other face to face in a long time. And, and obviously, since she was on the campaign, she's been really just digging in there. So we actually haven't seen each other o- even over Zoom in a long time. And so it's really good. This is the first time me and her have actually seen each other really face to face in quite some time which is different because we would see each other every day for the last uh, eight, eight or nine years. So, um, so, well, first of all, how are you feeling? How are you doing? You look great. How are you doing after such an amazing experience? You know, if, if somebody took 2020 campaign to a, you know, a a book, uh, you know, an editor, publisher and said, this is the story I want to write, they would get laughed at. Right. I mean, it's way too improbable every step of the way. And, um, you know, 2020 is 2020. So nothing's ever easy in 2020 and nothing goes the way it's supposed to in 2020. Obviously, when you have a president who has spent four years breaking every norm that anyone tells him about, that makes it even more interesting. So, you know, but I'm doing I'm doing fine. You know, I think we feel great about the election outcome on the presidential level disappointed like a lot of people around the Senate, around the House, and around further down ballot as well, the state legislatures. And I think all of us in the Democratic Party are going to have to spend some quality time and a lot of brain cells to figure out um, our messaging going forward and how we address this. But obviously having a president named Joe Biden, vice president named Kamala Harris, um, who are dedicated to actually getting on top of what needs to be done to get this country opened up again, get COVID under control. That's going to be a strong message for the Democratic Party. So, uh, you know, Anita has been involved in a lot of, you know, she's obviously done a ton in the political space, but she's done a lot in the progressive space on issues that are really important to the progressive community, uh, particularly on uh, particularly on choice issues, women's rights issues. Um, but I and, and, and voting rights and civil rights. I wanted to just ask you, what does it mean to you that you played such an important role in electing first the first black president and then electing the first woman vice president who happens to be a, uh, Af- a black woman and a Indian American? I mean, that's an unbelievable. <laughs> what does that mean to you? How do you how do you feel about that? You know, it's, a, it's an extraordinary feeling. I think people look back at 2008 and Barack Obama and they think, oh, that must have been easy. He's so incredible. And you go back to the beginning of that campaign. And of course, he was widely seen as maybe positioning to run for governor in four years or, you know, run for, um, you know, maybe get picked as vice president or whatever. But, you know, that one wasn't easy. This one was much tougher. But the sense of history and in particular, you know, I didn't think anything could top Grant Park, November 2008, a quarter of a million people and the first black president in this country's history. But, you know, when Kamala Harris said, you know, I'm the first, but I won't be the last, that that was an extraordinary moment, I think, for women across this country who finally can look and can see the possibility for them because 
you know, it's the ultimate pipeline, right? We talk about pipelines in companies, pipelines in education. You know, how do we get people into the pipeline? There is no better pipeline for the presidency than being vice president. So it's an incredible moment. Tell me about, um, obviously there was a period of time where it was clear that Joe Biden was gonna be the president-elect, but there was a few days where we had to wait for votes to come in in Pennsylvania. And then on Saturday, there was obviously the Wolf Blitzer call that we all love to hear. Uh, and then you guys had that amazing event uh, in Wilmington that night. Tell me about that night and tell me about like that day. And you've obviously been close to the vice president uh, for a while, but tell me about that day. What did it mean to you? What did it mean to the campaign? Well, you know, going into election day, going into the actual Tuesday election day, you know, we thought there were three, you know, there were four possibilities actually, but we only planned for three of them because the fourth one losing was such a bad option that, you know, we, we're like Mitt Romney 2012, didn't bother to write the speech. Right. But there were, there were three very real possibilities, Doug. The first was that we were going to win in such a way that um, um, it would be a relatively early night and it would be decided on Tuesday night that we would win North Carolina or we would win Florida or we would win Georgia early enough in the evening that it would be clear it would be a big night for Democrats, a big night for Joe Biden and that the race would get called on Tuesday night. And obviously that was the scenario we would have preferred, but it's also 2020. So it was never the scenario we were going to get. Uh, the second scenario that we were prepared for was where it was very clear that he would end up winning, but the race didn't get called on Tuesday night. So maybe Florida too close to call, but we felt good about our analytics and where it was gonna end up or um, you know, having maybe we'd picked up Arizona, maybe it was clear we were going to win Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, but they weren't getting called quite yet. But still a kind of, it may not be Tuesday night, but it may be Wednesday morning. And then, of course, the final um, scenario we were prepared for was the one where at the end of the day, they had to count all the mail-in ballots for the blue wall states in order for us to be declared a victor. And so it's 2020. What option do you think ended up being the one? It was uh, <laughs> the hardest, most difficult, most unpleasant. So we had this, had had this uh, concept for election night and built this amazing um, um, set for a car rally, which had become our signature event thanks to COVID, car rallies. And it, it really started the night uh, that he accepted the Democratic nomination um, at the convention, because this is exactly where we did his acceptance speech at the convention after we had to go all virtual, that he did the speech inside and then he came out and saw the fireworks. And I think all of us, a very small number of us who were there that evening thought, well, this is probably where he's gonna end up doing election night, right here in this parking lot. So um, we had everything, a really beautiful, gorgeous car rally going Tuesday night. And it became clear to us that we weren't gonna be declaring victory but we um, had enough people who were around in 2000 to know that we were going to be declaring victory soon, <laughs> that we were going to go out and say, <laughs> we're going to win. So right. everybody just calm down. We're going to win. It may take a few days, but we're going to win. So ultimately, he ended up giving a very short speech to a very, on a very beautiful set. And then, of course, the counting set in. Very slow in some places. They're still counting in some places. Very slow. Uh, and... Um, we felt comfortable that when everything was counted, we would win. But we also um, 
were impatient to win. So on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and certainly by Friday, we were really pushing very hard to get calls because we thought enough vote had been counted that the network should go ahead and call the thing. And they just didn't want to do it, particularly because Fox and AP had kind of gone out on a limb on Arizona on election night and Arizona ended up being, you know, incredibly close. So, um, so it, we like, you know, every day waking up is today the day, is today the day and paying a ginormous amount of money to keep everything intact at the Chase Center every day. I mean, the five-day election night. Yeah. So, you know, when we went back, when we kind of broke down on Friday night, you know, everybody went home, went back to their hotel rooms and it was like, okay, you know, it felt like Groundhog Day at that point. Are we just right. going to come in tomorrow and do the same thing? And um, and I talked, I heard from a couple people at the networks early Saturday morning that they thought, that they might be in a position to call the race that day mm -hmm. based on if Pennsylvania actually reported any results in a timely fashion. But we'd heard the same thing on Friday. So I kind of reported this out to our group when we had our first morning meeting. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Know? We'll see you until, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, when, so when Wolf Blitzer actually called, called it, right, um, Jen O'Malley, the campaign manager, was in the middle of the run. And her mother called her and told her she was running, right? She heard yeah. from her mom. She heard from her mom, okay? <laughs> I mean, most people were not in our boiler room at 11 right. in the morning because it was just like, it's never going to happen. Right. So, um, so I was there because I, I, I had faith. I'm, but, but Jen was on a run and other people were scattered all over. And then it happened. And so who did, did the vice, did the president-elect, see it when we all saw it or who told like what how did the how did it communicate it to him he and dr biden were like taking a few rare moments of quiet down um outside sitting next to each other just kind of it was a warm beautiful day so i think they were probably sitting in the sun a little and their grandchildren were watching who were staying in the house with them were watching cnn and they yelled it out of the house to them oh really Oh yeah, uh, no, they learned the same way we did from CNN, and then, yeah. but they actually learned from their grandchildren. So. Oh, that's incredible. Um, so, for, first of all, I, I don't know who did the advance for the event that night, but it was incredible. I, I mean, the fireworks show, I haven't seen a fireworks show like that, and I wonder why they don't do more fireworks shows like that, but the, pre the president-elect speech, obviously, starting with Vice President-elect Harris and then the President-elect speech um, and then the families and friends coming on stage and then the firework, the whole song list. It was just perfect. So it was, as always, you know, a team effort, yeah. right? We had, um, you know, Ricky Kirshner, who has done a convention for us, I think for the last four conventions and who did a brilliant, brilliant job on the 2020 convention. I'm surprised he's still speaking to me, but he did a brilliant job. And we knew that we would want him to help us with election night. Um, and so his concept of drones, because that, that's what was so amazing was the light drones, right? Um, he was like, uh, on the night after the convention ended, I was like, Ricky, what are we gonna do to top this? And he said, I've got this drone idea. So, I mean, so he gets a lot of credit. Our advanced team, Sam Salk and Ari Krupp did, and 
and everybody, they did an amazing job. And Rod O'Connor, just the entire team did an amazing job. Lisa Hart, I just, a whole team of people to make that evening look special. And it was special for everyone who was there. You know, after the race got called, people started coming down and just parking in the public lot behind the security perimeter there in Wilmington and just made kind of a party atmosphere all day. They were, you know, it was like a tailgate party all day. And this was before we let cars into the secure area. Um, but it was just, um, you know, it was like a big street festival in Wilmington that day. It was, you know, it was incredible. I mean, I mean, it happened was, in other places. Yeah. It was a festival everywhere. I mean, you just mm -hmm. felt like everyone, it seemed like someone lifted a piano off everyone's back, you know, mm -hmm. and, there were mm -hmm. celebrations all over the place. I was in on I was in um, uh, Annapolis, and you know when uh, you know I remember we went out to town, and just there was just everyone was just so happy, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So um, just uh, before I get into a little more on the race, which I really want to ask you about, I, just for fo for a spot for people who are you know thinking about like a career in politics and they use you as a model right because you are you have hit really the sort of the mount rushmore of political strategists um how did you get involved in politics and how did you sort of navigate a career particularly as a woman in a field that has been dominated by white men for so long how did you you know get to where you were so doug thank you for asking that question i am um... I've been texting this morning with one of the people who um, encouraged me fairly early to um, stretch my limits. I was, I was lucky. I was interested in government and politics. I was interested and I grew up in the Washington area. So, you know, we both know that the people we went to high school with, either they hated politics and fled from it, right? Or, right. or you kind of got the bug. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of got the bug and um, a friend of mine who had gotten um, a, a, an into the Carter administration in the Office of Administration um, called me in the summer of, I guess, 78 and said, how would you like to answer phones for the White House Chief of Staff? Um, and I was working behind a, what is now CVS, then People's Drugstore Counter as a cashier. And I was a student at the University of Maryland. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he was like, how would you, how would you like to answer phones for the White House chief of staff? As a volunteer, he said, you're not going to get paid. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And when Carter ran in 1976, and he was running against the imperial presidency in Watergate, one of the pledges he made was to cut the White House staff. So what happens when you cut the White House staff and you cut its budget? You don't cut your senior people, right? but you end up with not enough people to answer the phones. So I was a direct product of President Carter's pledge to cut the White House staff because they literally, I, I, I was interviewed by this unbelievably wonderful woman named Eleanor Connors who acted as though she was just extraordinarily grateful that I was willing to come in three days a week to the West Wing, okay? <laughs> to the West Wing as a college student and answer phones for the White House chief of staff. She was like, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, yes. So I did that for a year and a half for Hamilton Jordan, learned my best lessons about politics from Hamilton, the late Hamilton Jordan that I have ever learned from anybody. And um, then when the, um, the campaign was starting in 1980, I did not want to be in the White House. I wanted to learn the campaign side and I'd gotten interested in communications. So since I was young and um, a college student and I didn't know any better, I just called Jerry Rafshin, who was 
producing the media for Carter and who I'd gotten to know because the nice thing about answering phones for the White House chief of staff is the only people you get to know are like the important people he deals with. So, you know, so I, I didn't know any better. I was like, Jerry, I would really like to learn what you do. Can I come work for you? And he was like, sure. So, so I, um, I spent 1980 working for Jerry Rafshane and um, um, who produced all of the paid advertising. So I got to learn about press and, and paid media. Um, and I was hooked. I mean, I was just hooked. I thought this is an amazing way to, um, you know, to earn a living. So. And then you did Carter, you, you were, you, you also spent some time at the DSCC and worked mm -hmm. for, um, helped elect a number of democratic senators. Um, did you do a presidential race after 80 besides, I know, I, we, I know Bill Bradley, but before that mm -hmm. did, um, Yes, the person I, so I, I um, after Carter lost, I actually had no choice but to go back to school because there were no jobs for people like me. I was so entry level and, and you know, Democrats had lost control of the Senate, which they had not expected and had lost a lot of house seats. So you had a gigantic number of Democrats being um, dumped on a city that actually wasn't interested in hiring any of them because right. we, the executive branch had changed power, the Senate had changed. Right. And so all anybody wanted to hire were Republicans to begin with. So I was like, I must go back to school. I had left school at some point to work full time on the campaign. And um, and so when I got out of school, I was lucky enough to get a job working for um, someone I'd met working for Jerry. And he had just become the communications director for the Senate Democratic Policy Committee um, under Robert C. Byrd. Mm. So that was my first job on Capitol Hill. Charlie Cook and I shared an office. Oh, okay? really? Wow. Oh, yes. Uh -huh. So Charlie worked for the DPC also. And um, uh, that's like an entire podcast in and of itself. So we won't go there <laughs> yeah. right now. <laughs> but when my boss left to become John Glenn's communications director for his presidential campaign, I followed him. So um, I worked on the Glenn campaign as a very, very junior press staffer. Um, you know, John Glenn is one of the finest human beings ever to walk the face of the earth. His campaign, unfortunately, was one of the worst presidential campaigns. Um, it, 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 he was so poorly served in this campaign. I learned a huge amount. I did not work directly on another presidential campaign until uh, Bill Bradley's campaign in 2000. So. Yeah. The 84 campaign. I mean, I feel like there's a whole podcast around that. But um, just in yeah. terms of like, you know. I mean, so much talent came out of the 84 campaign, but, um, you know, I've talked to a few people who were, um, you know, who worked for Jesse Jackson. You've got the mm -hmm. Gary Hart stuff. Um, obviously, Walter Mondale is a VP, um, John Glenn. Um, it was a really mm -hmm. interesting race. And like, obviously, the, the wipeout that Reagan, you know, we're never going to see. We're never going to see. I don't think I don't think we're ever going to see a victory like that again. Um, I don't, think I don't so even either. think it's possible. I, I don't think we're going to see it in the near term, Doug. I couldn't agree with you more. I think the country is very polarized and it's a close polarization right now. And that was not the case in the early 80s. I mean, just consider the fact that while Ronald Reagan was winning 49 states, Democrats picked up seats in the Senate that year. Yeah. Uh, you don't see that. No, yeah. you don't. It's very strange. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So you guys had to make a decision in going back to the campaign. You guys yeah. needed to make a decision. Um, uh, in March uh, to go virtual. Um, how did campaigning in the era of COVID 
I mean, how did you, how did you adjust to that? What were the, I mean, how did you, obviously no one knew at that time how long it was going to be, but tell me about campaigning and COVID. Well, we were, we were like everybody else. I mean, um, I was the person who made the announcement to our campaign staff that um, everybody was being sent home and that our headquarters and all of our offices were being closed down. We had yanked people who were in supporter housing and already sent them home. Um, that people who couldn't get home had to go find Airbnbs and the campaign would pay for it. But, but that we needed to stop being together. Like everyone else, we all thought it was, you know, two weeks, maybe a month, right? right. And I mean, <laughs> you look back at that time, the day that, um, um, you know, we had our last, um, our last campaign event, which was March 10th, his victory speech at the Constitution Center in Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia that day put a 5,000 person limit on events. 5,000 people, right? <laughs> right. Uh, today, today, I actually think they are, they have a, either 10 person or like no right. uh, people together. So anyway, so none of us knew anything about it. Um, we also, um, you know, it was clear that week as we were heading towards this decision to close our headquarters, that we were going to have to build something for um, then Vice President Biden at his home, because we um, didn't have any, any kind of studio, any kind of television capacity there whatsoever. And, um, and, you know, it was clear that at least for two weeks, as we thought, he was going to be campaigning from there. So we had to make arrangements to do that safely, to have people come in who, uh, um, and have them out of the house, but to basically build very quickly a studio where we had some rather famous, you know, technical glitches the first couple of weeks and just disasters. What can we say? But we learned. And, yeah. and um, Jenna Melly Dillon became uh, the, the campaign manager for the general election the same day we announced we were going to a virtual campaign. So that's what she walked into. She had no opportunity to like get to meet anyone yeah. or didn't meet anybody. Right. Um, or barely anybody. And she had to deal with this new virtual reality. Um, and, you know, I think that the contrast between the two campaigns was never clearer than in how we reacted throughout this campaign to not wanting to put our supporters, not wanting to put the kind of first line responders and police officers and medical workers who have to come to presidential events, not wanting to put people in harm's way, not wanting to put our staff in harm's way. And of course, how President Trump conducted his campaign, one gigantic super spreader. Super so, spreader event, yep. Super, uh, the whole campaign was a super spreader right. event. But, but anyway, we got, you know, Doug, the one thing I would say is we got much better at it. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there, it, the, um, you guys had to, um, you guys had to figure out how to mount a convention. You got, the Democrats were the first party this year that did, you know, they did, did their conventions and do it virtually. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, I think the, the reviews on the convention were very, very positive. I think I, I've heard rumors that you guys might be up for an Emmy or something like that, but I mean, <laughs> but I mean, just the whole programming, how to, you know, traditionally we've all been to conventions. There are these four day long events that take, that are, that are traditionally like, you know, 
the programming is is hours and hours over the day, and then there's only a, there's maybe an hour or two that's on prime time. The cable networks mm-hmm. may pick up a little bit more than that. But talk to talk to me about how you guys conceptualize the convention and how it ended up being, you know, and and you know where it where it landed. Was this sort of, I mean, it wasn't what you guys obviously had expected. No, when when we um, closed down our campaign and. Uh, everybody worked from home for the rest of the election. I remember one of the first calls I made that weekend um, was with um, Joe Salmonese, who was the head of the convention, because Mm -hmm. we'd wrapped up the nomination by then. We obviously hadn't been talking or thinking about the convention. And I thought, you know, this is an amazing sort of luxury to be done so early with the nomination. I mean, all intents and purposes done with the nomination to be able to start planning the event early in March. And Stephanie Cutter had already been hired by then to kind of do the programming. And of course, Ricky Kirshner and Rod O'Connor were working on it as they have in the past had during the Obama convention. So I was very familiar with them. And Joe is, you know, a wonderful human being, an extremely competent person and a friend. So I was like, okay, Joe, what are you guys thinking? Because, you know, this could be all virtual. And he laughed and he was like, of course not, right? You know? And I had a conversation with our main doctors, um, our, our public health advisory doctors that, who have been with us every step of the way during this process, um, right after I talked to Joe. And I was like, well, what do you guys think about mid-July, you know, like a uh, convention? And they were like, are you kidding? <laughs> they, were like, <laughs> <laughs> they were like, are you crazy? you're not doing it. They were like, right. start thinking about alternatives, smaller crowds. They say with the ones who first suggested moving it to August, just because the projections at the time, because if you recall, it was originally supposed to be the middle of July. Right. And then we moved it back to August because the projections at the time were that this was going to be that if there was ever going to be a window to have any kind of live event, it would be in August. So um, one of the lessons I learned this year, Doug, is it's a lot easier to scale down than to scale up. Right. So, you know, I'd say almost on a biweekly basis, we had to scale it down. And finally, you know, by the final week of July, based on what we were hearing from um, our public health advisory people and what was going on in Milwaukee, we made the decision that um, there was no way we could do this um, in a way that wasn't going to put people in harm's way and that we were going to go all virtual. So fortunately, we had been planning by that time, a couple of months worth of hybrid, right? Where right. we were going to have a lot of virtual, but some live. Right. So, um, so anyway, so, and, and, and the roll call, which was obviously Fantastic. something everyone yeah. loved, right? That was a pretty early concept that we were going to basically, because the DNC made the decision pretty early that no matter what else we did, we probably were not going to have 5,000 delegates coming to Wisconsin. And so the whole, how are we going to do the roll call? And I thought the people who, who brought that to life, just an amazing job. Yeah, it was an incredible moment, incredible moment. Talk to me about February 11th, 2020, the night of the New Hampshire primary. Joe Biden had lost, you know, he had just lost, he had lost Iowa the week before. He um, came in, um, I think, fourth in New Hampshire. People had, fifth, fifth in New Hampshire. Um, This was right, you had, you were um, right, right around then, you were, uh, basically tasked to write the ship. Next was Nevada, and then obviously South Carolina. But what? Talk to me about that that night, and then talk to me about how what you did to get the ship 
headed in the right direction and then ultimately secure the nomination earlier than Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton did? The, um, you know, coming out of Iowa, we knew we were lucky, even though we'd come in fourth because the Iowa Democratic Party had made such a mess of their caucuses, right? <laughs> we yeah, all forget. I forgot about that. But yes, I remember now. <laughs> I know you forget it. about it. No, well, people forget what a mess it was. But it's a disaster. You know, it was a disaster. But it gave us some running room because no one actually knew what the results were. And no one had momentum. Days. And no one came out with momentum. Right. Um, however, we didn't come out with momentum, clearly. And we came out with probably negative momentum. And, and, and we got to New Hampshire, it was very clear that that was um, also gonna be very tough. It had always been a tough state for us. You had Elizabeth Warren, next door neighbor, Bernie Sanders, next door neighbor. Um, at that point, Deval Patrick, next door neighbor. Right. Um, and, um, and an electorate that was not a good Joe Biden electorate. It's just, and also no diversity. Right. And, you know, a lot like Iowa. And we had as a fundamental strategic premise of the campaign, always said the first four were important, but we never said the first two should get to decide who the nominee is. In fact, we've been pretty outspoken about the fact that the first two states should not decide the nominee for the Democratic Party. That is a diverse party. And two of the least diverse states in the country should not get to make those choices. You know, the press, of course, even though they spent 2019 saying, no, it's a diverse party. It needs diverse voices. All these great diverse candidates, Joe Biden, you're too old, you're too white, right? All of a sudden decided that Iowa and New Hampshire, two very undiverse states, should get to decide who was the nominee. Right. But we kept saying, no, we're going to go to these more diverse states after the first four. It's going to be clear kind of who's moving forward. And we felt that strongly. So it, it was clear. We were not going to do well in New Hampshire. And so we began a discussion within the campaign about what we were going to do on New Hampshire primary night. We could stay in New Hampshire and have one of those really sad primary night events, you know, where we talked about now we're going to go forward right. to Nevada and to the more diverse states. And we um, started talking about the idea of not just talking about the next two states, but actually going to South Carolina, which was our firewall state, but was also a state where we just had a lot of support and we were, and it was critical for us to win. And so, um, you know, obviously you never want to leave your um, supporters behind. You don't want to look like you're fleeing the scene of a disaster. But at the same time, one thing we felt really strongly about was let's just send the message. Cause this is what he was going to say regardless. So let's actually show and not just tell. So we made that decision to um, do an event in South Carolina that night, one of the better decisions of the campaign, because I think it just gave everybody so much energy for him to get down there, where yeah. people were just really enthusiastic. And then we knew we had to come in second in Nevada in order to really make our argument stick and then go win South Carolina convincingly. And a lot of stars aligned, let me tell you. <laughs> In yeah, I mean, Nevada, people forget yeah. how important that second place finish was. I mean, everyone remembers, obviously, the Clyburn endorsement was incredibly helpful, winning South Carolina as convincingly as you did. But you guys had some wind at your back that um, from Nevada that allowed, you know, that I think, I, I don't know this for certain, you, you, you'll be able to tell me this, but it sort of allowed certain people like Clyburn and others to feel more comfortable endorsing uh, the uh, Vice President Biden, right? We had to come in second in yeah. Nevada, I thought. 
I mean, my, I, I, I thought that if we did not come in second in Nevada, we were going to have real problems in South Carolina. Now, our candidate, who is not only the most optimistic person walking around this face of the earth, but also has done politics a long time and has one of the better political guts in this country. You know, he felt like we probably could be okay, but I was, I, I was quite nervous about what would happen if we did not come in second in Nevada. And, um, and it was a caucus state, which we'd already shown we, we weren't organizationally all that competitive in caucus states. We knew Bernie was going to win the state big. Um, um, that it was a great state for him for all kinds of reasons. He did well in caucus states, um, the, the Latino population. But we were we knew that in order to kind of demonstrate that our theory of the case was right, that we were going to do better, once we got to the more diverse states, we actually had to do better, right? So, right. Um, so we squeaked out a second place finish, which effectively ended the campaigns of um, Senator Klobuchar and Warren and um, Mayor Buttigieg and also Tom Steyer, they didn't, they didn't quite realize at the time how bad it was gonna be, but basically staking our claim to the two person race and also to, we won the African-American in the Nevada. And um, we won a lot of white in suburban vote. And so that was the Clyburn's endorsement um, with a level of moral authority you don't often find in politics. Um, Vice President Biden's great debate in South Carolina. Um, let's not forget the Las Vegas debate and the implosion of the Bloomberg candidacy. All of those things aligned for this massive South Carolina win, a margin much bigger than we had ever allowed ourselves to even dream about, that gave us this incredible momentum into Super Tuesday. A state, a states where we had spent zero dollars. I mean, literally right. zero dollars. Were yeah. you surprised on just how convincing the victory was on Super Tuesday? Because, you know, I think there was some thought that there was people who had, um, you know, people had voted before the, I believe people had, some people had mm -hmm. already voted in those places before South Carolina. And just, he dominated Super Tuesday in a way we actually haven't seen in a long time. Were you surprised about how strong the camp how strong the campaign was on Super Tuesday? Uh, I wasn't surprised. I was shocked. I think we all were. <laughs> um, you know, if you remember, Mike Bloomberg's strategy was a Super Tuesday strategy. Mm -hmm. Spent roughly we didn't know it at the time, but you know, they spent roughly a billion dollars on a Super Tuesday strategy. And, um, and we had felt it in those states, you know, in terms of supporters who were nervous and people endorsing him that we'd expected to endorse us um, because he looked so viable. Um, we, uh, Super Tuesday for us had always been, we'd always assumed it was going to be a delegate play for us, that, that that was the point in the campaign where you went from the first four to accumulating delegates. So our yeah. strategy had always been around you know, the most efficient congressional districts for accumulating delegates. Um, you know, states like Texas, obviously it had a lot of early vote already. We were, um, um, we had, I had closed all of the Super Tuesday offices that I could. I had stripped every staff person from a Super Tuesday state that I could and sent them to Nevada and South Carolina um, after New Hampshire. I was just like, you know, if we don't win, you know, if we didn't come in Doesn't second matter, in Nevada, right. 
It didn't matter. I was like, my, my catchphrase was, there is no Super Tuesday. You know, unless we do this, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And so, and so we literally, I mean, we won, we won states, won states that we literally spent no money in, like That's Massachusetts. In- yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Mm-hmm. How did you guys, you're the most disciplined political operative I know. And I think the reason why people come to you is just your, your ability to see the big picture and, and not get lost in, with all the shiny objects, right? I mean, you're just right. exceptional at that uh, along with other things, but you're just so disciplined. And, you know, when we've worked together, that's one of the things that I've always like noticed. And you're just so, you're, you, you know, obviously there are times in campaigns when you need to make changes and you obviously mm-hmm. did that. Uh, in certain places here and there, but your message was so remarkably consistent from start to finish, you know, and we both tell candidates oftentimes, like you basically want your launch video to be able to (laughs) be the video you close with. Right. Um, How did, and I know, so how did you guys avoid so many shiny objects, both in the policy space during the, 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 the nomin the nomination battle, but then with the 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 master of shiny objects, Donald Trump. You guys were so disciplined. Well, Doug, you and I both know that at the end of the day, a successful campaign is about the candidate. Uh, we, you know, before Joe Biden announced for the presidency, you know, he didn't poll. Um, he didn't sit around and think, oh, should I do this? Should I do that? He knew why he wanted to run. He knew, he saw Donald Trump was an existential threat to the United States. He had not wanted to run, wasn't planning on running. We had this extraordinarily talented group of candidates, but he fundamentally made the decision that at the end of the day, he might be the only one who could beat Trump. And he was running because he wanted to restore the soul of the nation. He wanted to rebuild the backbone of the nation, the working class people, and he wanted to unify the nation. And that's why he decided to run no polls. That was Joe Biden. And the discipline that the campaign was able to show came from Joe Biden, who never wavered, even when people told him he had to, you know, move to the left, that he wasn't, you know, he wasn't 2020 enough for people. He was too much, you know, nobody wants to unify. No Democrats wanted to unify the country. That's so old fashioned. He's so retro, you know, you can't do that. You're so naive. It's not the same Senate you served in. He never doubted why he wanted to run that. uh, and, And the person who deserves the most credit for this campaign really is Joe Biden, because the discipline that we showed was his discipline. I know why I'm running. I know what I want to do as president. And that's that's how people win these campaigns. I mean, Trump for all, you know, those of us who really don't like Donald Trump, don't like Donald Trump. But he he actually had a message in 2016 that he didn't waver from. Right. And Barack Obama in 2008, you know, he wasn't he wasn't running because a poll told him to, because if he polled, polls would have told him not to run. Right. Um, But he he knew what he wanted to do. He had a vision of what he thought the United States was. So I, I just, um, uh, you know, it was it, it, the campaign ended up being very good. I cannot say enough good things about Jen O'Malley Dillon, the team she built virtually, the people who were there for the primary, who were my small band of brothers and sisters that got us through, uh, you know, a very dark January and February. I can't say enough good things about the people who worked on this campaign. But the person who really set the tone and set the message from day one was Joe Biden. Yeah, and it was also a remarkably diverse campaign. And I think you and others deserve a ton of credit for the folks that you had on the campaign. Obviously, the 
Joe Biden made the historic decision to select an, uh, a black woman, an Indian American as his running mate. Um, and, um, you know, that is, I think, uh, also, a, 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 you know, in terms of your, your, your contribution and the campaign's contribution to politics. I mean, there's going to be a whole hope. Now there's going to be a whole sort of generation of, of black and brown and, and women operatives coming out of this campaign that are going to be the next Anita Dunn down the road, which is great. And that's oftentimes doesn't happen on these campaigns. It is really exciting. We had so many extremely talented women on this campaign. Um, there, are, they're not just going to be a lot of Anita Dunn's. There are going to be a lot of Jenna Malley Dillon's. There are going to be a lot of Julie Rodriguez Chavez's. There are going to be a lot of Erin Wilson's and a lot of Kate Benningfield's and a lot of, you know, um, Ashley Allison's. And a, God knows there's only one Simone Sanders. However, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> a lot yep. may aspire to that, but there's only one Simone Sanders. When you look at the women who were on this campaign, Listen, there were some extraordinary men on this campaign. I think Mike Donilon, one of the most brilliant political ad makers I've ever seen. Um, I thought our advertising was really exceptional. very good. Yep. Exceptional. Um, there's just a lot of good people on this campaign, but I am excited about the number of young women who took leadership roles and who really are the next generation of political operatives here. Yeah. So I'm going to let you go. One last question. Future okay. of campaigning. What, you know, are there things that we did during COVID that are going to be with us in four years? Like, are there aspects of old, the old way of campaigning that we've realized <laughs> we don't need a huge headquarters with 300 people running around in it? And, or we don't, you know, I, I'm just curious, what do you think is going to stay with us? What is the things that are going to go, what are we going to go back to? I think the importance of, of having great digital operations and the infrastructure for those operations is going to stay with us. I don't see that changing. I also do think you're gonna see a lot more virtual headquarters, a, a, a lot less feeling that you have to have 300 people together or 400 people together. And that of course, you know, the, the other uh, benefit of that is it's a lot cheaper to run a campaign that way. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's a lot, although we're still paying rent for an empty floor in a building in Philadelphia, but you know, it, it's just a lot cheaper to run a campaign that way. Um, I think that um, I, I find it very hard to believe that you will ever have a four night in-person convention again. It will either be cut <laughs> down. I just say thank everyone, God. <laughs> yes, I, I think everyone's that way, but but I, I can think of no one who's gonna say, no, we really wanna like shove everyone back into a sweaty arena one more time, as opposed to, you know, this allowed so many more people to participate, Right. you know? And so I, I think that conventions will change. I think, and and frankly, I, I, I the, the other huge thing that I think will change is fundraising. Yeah. Um, the we we ended up um, having, you know, finding a way to do virtual fundraising um, that that was great. And there's no reason that people have to go trooping around the way they used to around the country. So I think that you will just see a lot more virtual campaigning. It's interesting because, you know, the Trump campaign never embraced it. And I think when they go back, and they kind of take a hard look at their operations, the amount of money they spent. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, I, listen, I want to give props to the people in Trump world who spent the three years between his election and the election year registering voters, targeting 
the the people that they felt were their voters going, getting them registered and then getting them to the polls because the um, rural vote that you saw again this time um, exceeding everybody's expectations is a direct tribute to them. And they spent a ginormous amount of money to do it, but it paid off for them. So I'm just, but I think, but the biggest surprise to me was that they didn't embrace the virtual fundraiser. It feels like it would have been the easiest thing in the world to do with the president of the United States. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they also undermined voting by mail, <laughs> which, you know, yes. for their for a lot of their voters, older voters, you would have thought that they would want to encourage that. But um, um, so uh, Anita Dunn, thank you so much for coming on uh, the electables. This is great. I could literally keep talking to you for another couple hours. Um, but, um, you know, look, just congratulations on an amazing achievement. Um, and, you know, I, I know as what type of person you are in terms of like how you always give credit to, to, to folks who are on the campaign. And, and it was an amazing campaign, you know, and you guys had a, it was. Uh, and, and you had a great candidate and people don't give enough credit to Joe Biden as a candidate. He was an exceptional candidate. And I think people are going to look back on this race and maybe realize that he might, might've been the only Democrat who could have won this. Um, but um, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Good luck with the rest of the transition. Anita is also the transition co-chair. Thank you, Doug. Thank you so much. And I will say he is the only Democrat who could have won this year. So um, I feel that we were fortunate to actually win the nomination for him because it is scary to think about what would have happened in a second Trump administration. Oh, Just given the way Trump's behaving right now. So thank you for having <laughs> me on. Okay. Thank you, Anita Dunn. Um, this is Doug Thornell. Uh, thank you for listening to, an episode, to this episode of The Electables. We'll catch you next time.